Due to the subject matter, we advise that children under the age of 12, or those of a sensitive nature, should turn off now. And welcome to the Murder Tales podcast. Uh, in fact, actually, welcome to the Christmas special of the Murder Tales podcast. I'm Chris Britton, and each and every episode, I'm joined by the criminal historian and author H.N. Lloyd, or as we know him, Lloyd E. Merry Christmas. Do we have some I'm, Christmas bells to play in the background? I was thinking something like that. We need, we need, we need to to have some sort of atmosphere, don't we? So I'll work on it. So it's nice to see you've uh, you've grown your beard out and added some baubles on it. Yes, I, I was thinking of you know uh, jazzing it up. You can get this glitter now that you put in, kind of Christmas glitter. Maybe we could do that for Christmas Day. Yeah, mine's too short to do that, unfortunately. <laughs> it just looks like I've uh, I've been in a fight with the kids. <laughs> so. Right. Okay. So, as this is a Christmas special, um, we aren't necessarily going for something which is a bit jolly because obviously this time of year you do think about your f- spending time with your friends and family. This case, however, is one where you do think about your friends and family, but from a term of loss. And this is a case which is one that you've wanted to do for quite a while, haven't you? Uh, Yeah, I've been badgering to do this one since the very first episode because this is a case which absolutely fascinates me and it always has done. It's a a case which I've known about for many years. In fact, I wrote about it in the very first Murder Tales book and partly because I do have a slight connection to the case in that a i used to work in the building where the murder investigation took place and b i've also worked with a chap who was good good friends with the son of the victim in this case and he let me into some information about a case which which only made it more more dynamic and more interesting for me in, in a way so let's set the scene where do we start and when do we start well we start Four days before Christmas, the 20th of December, 60 years ago, 1961. So it's exactly 60 years this year since this offence occurred. It happened It happened in the Liverpool suburb of Naughty Ash. Now, for those uh, who know anything about the comedy, Naughty Ash was made famous by the legendary Ken Dodd. It's where he uh, placed that fabled Jambutty mines, which were looked after by the Diddy men. And Ken Dodd also said that uh, Naughty Hash had the most amount of sun anywhere in the world. Uh, well, that certainly wasn't in evidence on the n- night that this murder occurred. In fact, there was freezing fog over Liverpool and it had brought the city to a halt. So we're going um, back to the days where we where Liverpool actually had 
proper weather yeah <laughs> what we yeah. get today due to climate change where well, we get cow snow which is uh more like sleet if we're lucky well this this was the days when you used to get proper pea soup as they called it so a really thick freezing fog had come over the city let the listeners have a little bit of an idea of where this this murder happened if you could imagine your typical domestic street with terrace houses along one side but on the other instead of having your, your normal normal row of houses you've got a parkland and in the middle of that parkland you have a large stately home Thingwall Hall. Now that's obviously changed over time. So now when you look at it on Google Maps, it, it you have both sides of the street with uh, houses going down. It some of them are a little bit more modern than than um, than what was there originally. Yes, uh, but at the time it was not a secluded place, but it was a place where the houses weren't looked upon from the other side, and it was a, certainly a neighbourhood where maybe there was less chance of being seen if you were up to no good, then you would have been in, in a more built-up area. With all these cases, there's obviously a victim. Yeah. Um, so who was our victim? Well, our victim in this case was 27-year-old Maureen Ann Dutton. Maureen was a young mum. She was still uh, recovering from the very recent birth of her second son, Andrew, and she also had a two-year-old son called David. And they were both at home with her at the time. Uh, this was a, um, a time long before it, we would have now where mothers would go out to work and would drop kids off at, at uh, nurseries and places like that. Once a mother had given birth, she would stay at home practically until the child went to school. So Maureen was at home with her two children on the day of this offence. Now, she'd phoned up her mother-in-law and asked the mother-in-law if she'd come round. The mother-in-law, a lady called by the name of Elsie, she popped round and she spent some time with Maureen and the two children. She's then asked, would you come back later on this afternoon and look after the little baby? Because I want to take David out to see the Christmas crib at the local church. And Elsie agrees. She leaves at about midday to go to a game of bingo. But then after the game of bingo, she comes out of the bingo hall and she finds that the freezing fog has descended and she won't be able to make it back. So she phones up about half twelve uh, and she speaks to Maureen on the phone and she says, look, I won't be able to make it back. I'm just going to have to go home. Maureen says, oh, don't worry about it. I'll take him to see the crib another day. And it's then several hours that pass until Brian Dutton, the father of the family, comes home. Now, he had a job as a scientist for ICI chemicals. At five o'clock, he arrives at the family home and he's immediately concerned because the house is in complete darkness. He'd normally expect to get home and see some lights on in the windows or the curtains drawn and the dim light coming through the curtains. But there was nothing like so he gets out the car and he starts walking through the house looking for the family. The house is in silence. In the dining room, he finds the children's and his wife's half-eaten dinner on the table and a cold cup of tea. He goes into the back room and he finds Maureen murdered. It was a real brutal murder. She had been stabbed 14 times. The two children were covered in blood and were in the room with her. The baby had been left in the crib. David was on the floor crying by his mother's body. Brian immediately called the police 
and the police sprung into action. The head of Liverpool CID took charge of the case. His name was Superintendent James Morrison. He did immediately a lot of sensible things. He put up uh, house house inquiries. He put up a fingertip search, which literally meant police officers on their hands and knees going across the ground looking for any evidence that they could find. Uh, they searched gutters. They searched down drain pipes looking for weapons. Um, they stopped cars coming in and out of the area. And they quickly established that there'd been some quite odd things going on in the neighbourhood in the hours leading up to the discovery of the body. So you, you said the murder weapon, obviously she's been stabbed, so I, I presume we're looking for some sort of knife. Was there anything in particular from the wounds that would have attracted their attention? They discovered a sheath, which came from an extremely long knife, which seemed to fit the murder weapon. It was a very, very long knife. But the real brutality was just in the frenzy of the offence. Justin said this. Okay. We can't, we can't be 100% sure about that because the weapon itself was never found. Suppose as well, it, it would be a bit strange for somebody to have, uh, to be walking around with a knife of this type and to actually have a, some sort of sheath for that. So I suppose this would direct you towards some sort of particular suspects or not when you've got uh, a sheath like that you might think of somebody who, who's used to hunting maybe somebody used to fishing might use it to cut fish more unusual possibly somebody into butchery i mean normally they would have a set of knives for something like that or possibly the military so potentially that would that would tell us what kind of suspect we're looking for obviously it's a shocking set of circumstances did anybody witness any strange sounds was the property broken into was there any screaming disturbance nobody in the neighborhood heard anything which is odd you would expect that there would have been sounds of screaming sounds of a disturbance but there wasn't do you think that might have exacerbated by the, th the thick fog dampening the sounds? I doubt it would have caused it to that extent. I think maybe it was because of the nature of the killing, a blitz killing, where maybe the victim simply hasn't had time to respond. If we think about when somebody is attacked, if you're attacked with a knife, if it's done quick enough, you wouldn't have time to scream. The scream comes because of a shock. Mm. I suppose what stands out to me from the description you've given is the fact that there's no signs of breaking or a disturbance in the property apart from literally where the, the murder took place. No signs of, 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 of breaking at all. In fact, the doors and windows were all locked and there was no signs of disturbance other than the crime scene being awash with blood. The fact that the baby was neatly in, a, in its crib as well indicates that the victim hasn't been interested in the children. He's happily done the murder whilst there's a child there watching it happen. Yeah, which is disturbing enough. What that suggests to me is the fact that there, there is no disturbance, there, there is no forced entry. Would that push towards somebody that she knew, maybe? Not necessarily. It could be indicative that she, she knew somebody and let them in and felt comfortable with them. Or it could be indicative that somebody has gone into the property whom she trusted and didn't suspect. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it's the same thing as she knows the killer. Basically, what I'm leading to is normally in these kind of cases, we, we're normally looking at a family member who might have committed it. Was there evidence to say that Brian was, was in work and returned home when he said? 
he had a cast iron alibi. He was in work with witnesses. He was quickly exonerated. All okay. family were, were completely exonerated. This was a motiveless murder. The, the police looked into all the motives they could think of. Were there any enemies of the family? Was Maureen having a secret affair? Was Brian having a secret affair? Did Brian owe people money? All this was looked into by the police and they found nothing. Brian and, and Maureen were squeaky clean. The mm. murder was entirely motiveless. Okay, so what, if you've got the usual suspects out of the way, where do you start looking? Well, it all started to come together with local witness statements. Over 20,000 witness statements were taken within the few days of opening, few days of the murder inquiry. And one of the most interesting ones was from one of the Dutton's next door neighbours. They, on the day of the murder, heard a knock on the front door. They opened the front door and there was a young man in his early 20s and he was simply stood on the doorstep, had a blank expression. He was wearing a leather jacket and he was slowly clapping. The next door neighbour was incredibly freaked out by this and quickly closed the door and locked it. The young man was then seen by several other people in the neighbourhood. Everyone who saw him thought he looked a bit weird and was a bit freaked out by him. And the last sighting of him, about a mile and a half away from the scene of the murder, outside of the Court Hay Methodist Church, where he was being violently sick and he had his hands thrust deep into his pockets as if he was trying to hide them. Uh, now, obviously, some people have construed this to say, well, did he have blood on his hands and was he trying to hide them for that reason? So obviously, if he had so many witness statements and they had very good witness statements over over how this man looked, were they able to piece together some sort of photo fit or we are i know we're talking about the 60s so yeah in fact they police created the world's first ever color photo fit of this person now unfortunately there's there's no copies of it in color left but you can still see black and white copies of that uh photo fit to be fair it wasn't very good uh it's just a very generic picture of a young man with slick black hair uh, wearing a leather jacket. It, it could have been anyone, to be fair. So even though it was an innovative way the police went down, I'm not surprised it didn't yield any results in, in, in the immediacy. In fact, Chris, our, our local paper, the Liverpool Echo, prides itself on being the very first newspaper to publish a photo fit on its front page. And it relates to this case. It sounds so strange to the fact that we're talking 60 years ago and you kind of you kind of think there might have been something before that uh, you get that image of wanted posters don't you so mm. well yes you had you had wanted posters and in, in obviously in the jack the ripper murders you had artistic impressions but they weren't actually based on witness statements as we would know them today in fact the ones in earlier cases like the jack the ripper cases they were incredibly anti-semitic and they were trying to make a political point. Whereas this was purely, what have the witnesses seen? Let's extrapolate and, and make a picture of that. So were they able to find somebody who fitted this description? No. Right. OK. Now, there was another witness who saw something else. They were on the 10C bus going down the East Prescott Road into the town centre. Now, this is actually a bus route that's still going to this day. And I used to take it regularly to get to and from work. At about 4.30pm, a rather 
plump blonde lady of about 30 years of age boarded this bus and she was sat on the bus in quite a distressed state. One of the other passengers realised that the woman was Irish and that she kept muttering to herself, oh God, oh God, oh God. And then when the lady asked her what was up, uh, she said that she'd done something terrible and as a result she was having to leave the city. One of those things which stands out for me, you said this was a frenzied attack, so you would expect to see some sort of blood on the perpetrator. Was there anything obvious apart from her ramblings? No, there's no report of the one being blood covered or anything of that nature. But again, would the killer have been blood covered? We're making assumptions there. But you're talking about the time scale. Mm. Yes, I mean, he could have cleaned himself up. We don't know whether he might have cleaned himself up. We don't know, did he come prepared and have a change of clothes with him? Killers occasionally do that. There's a, there was a circle in America in the 1920s who they believe would go commit murders in, in, in domestic households, leave, and then a short uh, distance away would have a change of clothes to hand. So that might have been the case. Um, we just don't know. You keep saying he, reading between the lines. I don't think you believe that this lady on the bus was the perpetrator. No, I don't. I I think that that's a red herring. Again, I'm making assumptions here, but I tend to take the line of least resistance with these things. Occam's razor, what is probably the most reasonable explanation for that? You've got a young Irish girl in a distressed state who says she's done a terrible thing. And she wants to leave the city because of that. I think young Irish, possibly a girl who's maybe had an illegal abortion and is leaving the, leaving the city. I think that is more likely than this is a woman who's committed a murder. I mean, it was known around about the times, particularly around the old Swan area. Yes, yeah. So, yeah. yeah so what we've got to remember is abortions were illegal at the time. You couldn't just go to your, your, your local sexual health clinic and, and have occurring treatments it was back street it was horrible it was dangerous so it could be a possibility yeah mm-hmm. okay then. right so i take it there's more to this then yes this is where things start to take a really peculiar turn at this point the assistant chief constable of liverpool was a man by the name of herbert barmer he was an incredibly corrupt police officer He has, as far as we know, in his career, set up at least four people for murder, and he watched those four people hang. Two of those people have since had their convictions overturned, and we know for definite that they are innocent. The other two people, uh, there is an ongoing campaign to have their convictions concerned. For the listeners who are interested... The two sets of murders I'm talking about, one is called the Cameo Conspiracy, which was a shooting in a cinema. And the other one is known as the Cranbourne Road Murder, where it was a recently widowed old lady who was murdered. And in both sets of cases, Herbert Barmer basically picked people from his personal didn't like them list and set them up for murder. But by this point, he'd risen up the ranks of the police. And he was a very powerful man at this point. And in January of 1962, 
he holds a press conference at Old Swan Police Station. Now, I want you to picture, try and picture Old Swan Police Station because it is an old Victorian Gothic building. It, it's a real creepy building. It's a slight aside here, but I once saw an exorcism take place in that building. Uh, but that that's a, that's a story for another another time. Um, next year's Halloween special. Next year Halloween <laughs> special, perhaps. But it's it's a real horrible, creepy building, and there was a press conference there. And at this press conference, Herbert Barmer stands up and he holds up a small wooden figure, and he says that he now believes Maureen Dutton was murdered as part of a blood sacrifice on a full moon at the winter solstice to appease a Polynesian tiki god. Right. Okay, yes. Now, to understand where Herbert Barmer was coming from at this point... <laughs> I'm going to be honest, I don't know where he's coming from with this. A tiki god and a blood sacrifice. Yes. You have to understand two things. And... Forgive me if you think I'm going off the point a little bit here, but I've got to explain the Tiki religion in order for you to understand this a little bit. I was going to say, this This sounds very much like an X-File. It does, it does. It's it's getting that way, isn't it? Now, the Tiki religion is basically part of the Polynesian creation myth, and it's spread over thousands of islands in the South Pacific Ocean. So it's islands like New Zealand, Tahiti, Tonga, Samoa, the Cook Islands, the, the Pitcairn Islands, and even Hawaii. Okay, so there's there's thousands of islands that this this religion is spread over, uh, and the tiki is a creation myth peculiar to those islands. But it's not that simple either, because there are several creation myths that spin off from the same thing. So to keep it as as simple as we can. There's a god called Tain, who is the god of the forest and the birds. Um, and he's also the god of war. Uh, and he created Tiki, who was the first man. And then Tiki became lonely. And then he created the first woman out of his own blood um, and mud. And that lady was called Hain Ahu Wan. And she was the first woman. And then they discovered sex. And then after having sex... Uh, they then had the first human child, who was called Hain Kau Ataha. Now, forgive me if I'm saying that wrong, if anyone here is part of the Tiki religion. I apologise. I'm not an expert in these matters. OK, so why am I, I telling you this? I really don't know. Well, because Tiki is all about sex and it's all about rebirth and it's all about Herbert Barmer realising that suddenly we have got quite a, a new thriving tiki culture in Liverpool. There's tiki nightclubs, uh, there's tiki churches, there's a, a thriving sub-community which is becoming quite popular with students as well. And he looks at this religion and as a racist essentially he goes, well I'm suspicious of this. And this is a religion which is all about sex and rebirth. And they come from these islands, so they must have human sacrifice. And what better type of person to sacrifice who had recently given birth and therefore represents birth and fertility and newness? Committed the murder on the Winster Solstice 
in order to end the darkness and lead us through to the end of winter. And that's what Herbert Barmer believed. Okay. Yes. Right. There's a, there's a couple of questions here. Right. <laughs> and I'm still trying to get my head around it. Was there a thriving culture of tiki sacrifice? Well, there was, absolutely. We did, we did have uh, an immigrant community of recent people who'd come from the Polynesian islands, and they had set up some coffee shops and restaurants in Liverpool city centre. In fact, some of them actually, remnants of them remain to this day. Off Seal Street, there used to be quite a, a new tiki style nightclub it recently shut down but that was actually on the site of an older polynesian nightclub from the 1960s but they weren't committing sacrifices in those clubs or coffee shops were they they weren't committing sacrifices at all and another thing that herbert barmer didn't like was the fact that the polynesian religion one of the most prevalent symbols throughout the polynesian culture is the swastika but it's the traditional swastika, which is the reverse swastika. So it's the same as what they had in the Hindu religion as well. It's, exactly. It's, it's, yeah. It is a symbol which originally, in its purest form, is representing love and harmony and peace. Hitler perversed it. And if you notice, when you ever see uh, the Nazi swastika, it is a mirror image of the one from the Hindi and the tiki culture it's being it's, flipped backwards but it's not uh, just been flipped backwards it's also been turned on an angle to make it more look more progressive and aggressive exactly so it was a, an essential misunderstanding of what this symbol meant by a very narrow-minded man now one of the last people to be arrested was actually a student who was from the polynesian islands he was arrested after he'd been caught stealing medication from a hospital storeroom. Uh, the second barmer had this man had a tattoo on his chest of a, of a swastika. He hadn't pulled in for the murder of Maureen Dutton on no other evidence other than that. So again, apart from his assumptions, was there any evidence? No, simply the fact that there was a man arrested for a completely unrelated crime not even a violent related crime. It was a doctor who was doing too much and, and struggling to cope and so was stealing some uppers from the storeroom. And when they got into the police station, he's got a tiki uh, religion tattoo on his chest, which happened to be a swastika. Herbert Barmer puts two and two together, makes five, and has the guy arrested for the murder. And how long is he in custody for? A few days, because he turns out, lo and behold, he has a cast iron alibi for the day of the murder. The thing is, I don't, I don't understand why he went down there, because just logically, they would have to find a, a mother who had just given birth. Yes. How are you going to do that? Well, unless you've got access to medical records, it would be very, very difficult. Unless you're hanging around random street corners open to see women carrying newborn babies. That's why it doesn't make sense. I suppose with the medical student, there might have been some circumstantial evidence, but I wouldn't actually say that's that's anything obvious. I know at the time you announced the the births in the local newspaper, but you could be looking several days to a week before Mm -hmm. that happened. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that was a a potential source as well, because you did say how old was Andrew at the time? About 20 years? Yeah, he was a... a couple of weeks old not 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 old at all 
Yeah. So, so, so his, he, his birth could have been in the in the local paper. But again, you, you wouldn't necessarily have the address of the parents there. So it was a peculiar route for the police to go down. And I do think it was entirely because of racism and a fear of a new culture coming into the city that Herbert Barmer didn't understand and, and quite frankly, didn't want to understand. I personally think it's also down to the fact that he was scraping the bottom of a barrel because it's such a prevalent murder being so close to Christmas for a mother who's just had a, a newborn and in strange circumstances where nobody's with no obvious motives. So mm-hmm. for me, it's probably a, a desperation as well. Yeah, entirely desperation. You've got a man who is, as well as that, he, he is hungry for uh, his name to be in the papers. That's a thing throughout his career that he likes. He likes seeing his name in the press. He likes having the credit for catching killers. Doesn't even have to be the right person. As long as he's got the credit for catching somebody, that's all that matters to him. He needed a boost in this murder case. And he turned to his own prejudice to give that case a boost, to get it in the papers again by saying, I think this was a was a ritual murder. Apart from the three possibilities we've spoken of so far, none of them seem fairly realistic, apart from the, the guy in the leather jacket. But once again, we can't really piece together who that is. Was there any other avenues of investigation they went down? Now, have you heard of the phenomenon of the fake social workers and fake doctors? Vaguely. This is where they've tried to use their position to to gain entry to a property and, and potentially either steal, assault them, abduct. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a moral panic that comes up every couple of years. Some say that they, these these fake social workers don't exist. I think that it happens, but just not on the you know the scale that that some papers report it at. Effectively, Tuesday the nineteenth of December, nineteen sixty one, which is the day before the murder, in Halewood, which is an area not far away from where the murder happened, uh, there was a knock at a door of a house where where a mother was in with her newborn baby. She opens the door. And there's this young, smartly dressed young man. He was in his 30s, wearing horn-rimmed spectacles. He was from the black community. And he said that he was a doctor sent by the local health board uh, to check on the young baby and the mother. The mother invited the man into the house. He's then examined the baby. He's then asked if the mother could undress so that he could examine her as well. The mother is undressed. And then this man has then sexually assaulted her. The woman has realised what's happening, realised that this man isn't a doctor and has started to react badly and he's fled scared from the house. Now, obviously, the police saw that, saw that it happened the day before Maureen Dutton's murder. And then they looked at the circumstances of her murder. She's been interrupted midway through a dinner. She's let somebody into a house and closed the door behind them. Someone that she trusts. So that person's been able to get from the front door to the living room and has turned up unexpected. Kind of like the man, the fake doctor from the day before. So this led the police to wonder, is this the same man and has he escalated his behaviours? Has then murdered her in her living room. So there could have been potential other victim the day before. Mm. Only he's been scared and he's ran off. But the next day, the following day, he's been more prepared. And he's decided, I'm going to kill this woman. But there's no witnesses. 
There's no witnesses. And there was no sign that Maureen Dutton had been sexually assaulted. Did the police follow this line anyway? The the police followed the line of inquiry and they hit one brick wall after another and they, they couldn't get anywhere with it. Okay. So who is the perpetrator? Well, for the very first time on the podcast, we don't know. This is an unsolved crime. Okay. Let me rephrase that question. Who do you think was the perpetrator? I think out of all the possibilities that we've discussed this evening, the most likely is the fake doctor. That fits, for me, that fits the modus operandi the best. That he's been able to trick his way into the house. Maureen's felt comfortable letting him into the living room. And she's been caught off guard. So he's been able to quickly, brutally murder her with a minimum of sound and fuss. But then again, as as we've just established, there's no witnesses to back that up. There was the Dutton's children. Okay. The the Dutton's two-year-old son witnessed the murder. He was the only living witness. And the police put a police officer with the son for several weeks to see if he could give any clue as to who the murderer was. But he's two years old. Yeah. So you're going to ask me what he told the police? Okay, so up until this point, we've relied on witnesses in the neighbourhood. What you're saying is David, who was two at the time, was in the room when it happened. We can establish that. Were they able to get any information from him? Absolutely not. The boy was catatonic for several weeks. He, as far as we know, didn't recall anything. Now, I know somebody who, who knew David and grew up with David and went to school with David. And they said that whilst they didn't put hard for information... It was no secret that his mother had been murdered. And whenever he was asked about it, he would also say, I don't remember. I don't remember. I was too young. What we do know is that, that he was a very accomplished child at school. So it didn't seem to have affected him too much, thank goodness. But up until his, his late teens, he was denying any memory of the, of the incident. Okay, you say denying any memory of it. Mm. I think that, but, does that change later on? No, it doesn't actually. The way it, I'm only saying that because obviously traumatic experience can be buried deep inside. So, and we know he's seen the murder. So subconsciously mm-hmm. it will be in there. It's just that 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 probably as a protective mechanism, he's not letting it into his conscious. It's the hiding in his subconscious. The thing is, going back to the scenarios that you mentioned so far, maybe this is my theory now. Maybe we're looking at a mix of two. Go on. So maybe the man in the leather jacket was your fake doctor. Because it, it, he's the only one who's seen on the street around about that time. And we know a time frame of, what, five hours, roughly? Mm-hmm. So if he's the only one, one who stands out at the time, somebody who is able to enter, he has got a strange attitude and behaviour as what's been witnessed. It's so strange that it's scared the neighbour and they've closed the door immediately. It's freaked out several other people who have seen him in the neighbourhood. If you open the door to him, you wouldn't let him in unless he's mm. pushed his way in, in which case I would expect there to be more noise and a kerfuffle and for yeah, exactly. na- neighbours to hear. Yeah, but what if? He suddenly on, had a change in attitude and he's gone, actually, I can act respectably. We've got to establish that it's definitely at the exact time. We don't know exactly whether mm. he's gone from one door to another. Maybe he's gone off. Maybe he's, but, maybe he's come back. That's true, but we've also got to take into account he has an entirely different description to the other 
fake doctor. So the chances of there being two fake doctors in the same city trying the same thing on two separate consecutive days is quite slim. Maybe. Maybe. I, I like see where you're coming from, and I like your theory. I think he is a good suspect, and I, I, I'm not surprised you've picked him, because for a while I, I thought he was the best fit for the murder. But after considering it for many years, I've ended up going with the fake doctor, because I think he has the most chance of getting into the house. But again, was the man in the leather jacket, was he known to her? Think about it, when he, he turns up and he starts clapping on somebody else's doorstep, maybe got the address wrong. But then why draw such attention to yourself back in such a weird way? Because maybe some people can just be strange. But was he intending to murder somebody? You don't know. So the fact that he's got a blank expression turned up and started slow clapping, the fake doctor it sounds a great story to me, but it falls into those realms of urban myths. But this one isn't. This was documented with the police. Yes, which I do, I do. I do guess. That's why I'm not as convinced with that kind of story, because it might just be me. The fact that I, ha- I feel as though it is like an urban myth. But the fact is, there aren't any other witnesses apart from this one man. Mm. There is a, I, there is definitely an argument to say that he was acting strangely. There's also an argument there that for her to open door must have been somebody that she either knew or trusted to allow it so maybe we're looking we've got to look at the whole scope of the time scale maybe that man might have been there before 10 past one we just shouldn't look directly in that time frame of half one to 10 past six he might have been in earlier he might have been hanging around we know we can pinpoint when the murder happened because the half-eaten dinner so we know yes. it happened around dinner time. It happened not long after one o'clock, possibly only a few minutes after the phone call with Elsie. Exactly. So what if the description from the neighbours, what if that happened earlier and he was hanging around in the area? What if the phone call was the disturbance from dinner, why they moved? And what if, and being the 60s, what if her back door was open? The fact they did it in front of the kids would suggest to me that maybe she didn't want to frighten them knowing what was going to happen. Maybe he was a thief, a burglar. So she's on the phone. He's come in, thief, and she's disturbed him. Yeah. But to me, the fact that the children are in the same room as her, and the boat all stopped eating at the same time, that says to me something's happened whereby all children have been herded out of the dining room, leaving the dinner, expecting to go back to it, taken no, to another it... room where the murders happened. But why was the baby still in the crib and covered with blood? Taken to the crib and it, it's placed in the crib whilst whilst the medical examination, fake medical examination takes place, gets covered in the blood in the, in the frenzy of the murder. Maybe baby David's covered in blood because he's tried to help his mother. The baby's being crying, so the little brother's tried to comfort the brother, and blood's got him that way. Right. So the one thing that we have to obviously ask is what happens to the family afterwards? Well, we don't really know. Other than the private information I've been given, that we know that, the, that both sons did well academically at school and seemed to be quite normal, well-adjusted people. Apart from that, we, we know little. The family asked for privacy, and... Uh, this was a time when the press respected that and didn't go after 
stories the way they do this you know nowadays you know in the millie dowler case where, where they they sickeningly hacked their mobile phone deleted messages back back in the 1960s when when the family said we want privacy the, the press gave them that and left them well alone and we, we don't know really that that's all okay so your final thoughts before we go the only other thing we've not asked is was there any similar murders at the time well almost but i would say not quite there was a murder nine months later in september of 1962 in Childwall, a very very short distance away from the murder of maureen dutton now this was the murder of a 12 year old girl she was friends with a young boy called peter ricks he knocked on the young girl's house she let him in the house was empty apart from the, the little girl he has then tied her up and and killed her with a poker it was entirely motiveless. It wasn't sexually motivated. It was simply murder for murder's sake, in the way that Maureen's murder was murder for murder's sake. But there were differences. Uh, the fact that the the victim was, was tied up, the fact that the victim was known to the murderer. There is also the fact that the murderer in this case was a 15-year-old boy. And the victim was 12 years old. Yeah, and the victim was 12 years old. So it was a victim who was easily overpowered by the murderer. So whilst it, there are some similarities, I, I would say that they're probably not connected. That, this is one of those things that you see a lot in true crime and in some true crime novels, is the fact that they do have a tendency of linking these two cases together. I think with what you've you've highlighted there, it stands out that it's not as simple as that, just by saying it's in the same area and it's similar. That's about it. In the Yorkshire Ripper case, there was a, there was a early on there was a case which was considered as possibly part of the Ripper Ripper oh. series. Yeah, um, part of the Ripper series. Um, in fact, there was two, uh, but but the one in particular, it turned out in the end, it was just a random young man who who'd randomly committed this murder for his own deviant purposes. And when he was caught, he quickly confessed. And it, it, this is very, very similar. The young boy's been caught. He has initially tried to deny his way out of it, but eventually he's admitted the crime. Now, I would think that, the, that he then has no no reason not to admit to Maureen's murder if he, if, he, if he did do it. So I think that's another reason that we can discount Vicks as, as Maureen's murder. Okay, right. So we've got it. We've finished our first series of the Murtales podcast. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed the series so far. We've now left you. We've now left you with our first unsolved case. So if you have any theories or any questions, get in contact. You can get in contact by going to our Twitter page, which is at Murder Tales Pod, or you can get in contact with Lloydie directly by going to at HMLoyd1. We'll be back next year with our second series in the Murder Tales podcast. If you haven't caught up on all our episodes so far, go back. You can listen to them on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favourite podcast. And of course, if you want to get a head start on some of the cases that we're going to discuss next year, maybe you might want to go and purchase some of Lloydie's books. Yeah, available from Amazon. Uh, paperback, ebook. Just type Murder Tales, H and Lloyd into your search and you'll get them all. There's there's uh, 27 of them out so far. I'm sure you'll enjoy them. Right, Lloydie. I've enjoyed doing this series, so thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. We've uh, covered quite a few varied cases over the last year. 
uh, it'd be interesting to see what we're going to start off with next year. I've got a few things lined up. Obviously, we, we need to discuss it amongst ourselves, but I've got a few ideas of what I'd like to do and what I'd like to cover. But before we go, I'd just really like to sincerely wish our listeners a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Likewise, that goes from both of us. Thank you very much, and we'll see you in 2022. If you enjoyed the show, please go onto iTunes and leave us a lovely five-star review. And even better, click on that subscribe button so you don't miss any future episodes. Or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Murder Tales podcast is based around the criminal history books by H.N. Lloyd. If you'd like to get your hands onto them, you can click on the Amazon link on our Twitter page. This show was presented, edited and produced by Chris Britton, who's created, written and co-presented by the author H.N. Lloyd. Our theme was New World Order by Neil Roberts Music. The Mother Tales podcast is part of the P-Pod casting network. You can check out our other shows, such as the Pub Politics podcast, or even the Tragical History Tour. All you have to do is go and search on your favourite podcast provider.